Hello all, and welcome to another episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. This month, Dr. S.J. Krasno talked to me about growing up Jewish with a pretty liberal family, but only gradually realizing that they were queer, non-binary, and trans. It was really cool to hear about how embracing their queerness opened up SJ's world to numerous new possibilities, new friendships and communities, new ways of understanding Judaism, new fields of study, and more. One of the main topics that SJ grapples with as a religious studies professor and researcher is how the institutional elements of any religion tend to strive to gain and maintain what power they can. Even a religion whose practitioners often face marginalization from the larger society. SJ studies the ways that queer and trans Jews in particular engage with their faith in powerful and innovative ways that can and do shape Judaism as a whole, if only the larger community were paying attention. According to SJ, in Judaism and other religions, the LGBTQ community is already present and active, even when the institutions have yet to do the work to make room for them. It is time for faith communities to center the ones who have been pushed to the margins for the enrichment of the entire religion. Let's dive into the conversation to hear from SJ about this research and how it developed out of their own journey as a queer and trans Jew. So my name is SJ. I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm 35, and so I actually like grew up in California. That's where I spent my whole life until three years ago when I moved to Kansas City for the job. And I'm a professor of religious studies at a smallish college university here in Kansas City. I'm Jewish, I identify as queer, non-binary, and trans, and outside of working, I really just like spending time outdoors. It's funny, like in California, I did not think of that as something that distinguished me from other people, because I feel like it's just normal that everyone spends mm. so much time outside, because mm-hmm. uh, we have good weather, right? Like, why wouldn't you? But I noticed that in the Midwest, it's like people will be like, you're really outdoorsy, and I'm like, am I? <laughs> like, is that a thing about me? So here it really has become like part of my identity uh, in a different way yeah. because it seems to differentiate me. But I like walking, hiking, snowshoeing, anything that allows me to be outside makes me happy. Sweet. So I've, uh, I live in Kansas City, Missouri with my dog and my partner, um, my spouse. We've been married for, God, I always feel terrible because my memory and everything is not great. So I'm like, I think we've been married for two to three years. Let's mm-hmm. just leave it as a range, maybe. Sure. <laughs> She's going to love that. Um, <laughs> and and we've been together like seven years. Uh, that I feel more confident about. We met in San Diego and she moved out here to join me after I got this job. And she is a psychologist. So she works at a, a medical center in town doing that work. And she's been able to work with some queer and trans clients, which has been really special to her and to me. So yeah, our life like professionally and personally gets to be pretty queer oriented, which I think we both really enjoy. We feel lucky. That is really cool. I'm interested in hearing sort of like how you ended up where you are, like how you grew up and stuff. Do you want to start there or talk more about your current life as a professor? Yeah. So I like, as I was kind of thinking about what felt important to say, Mm -hmm. I did end up kind of thinking a lot more about my earlier life 
maybe than mm -hmm. I even anticipated, because mm -hmm. oftentimes I think like how I relate to my queer identity, my trans identity, my Jewish identity these days is so rooted in my scholarship and my mm -hmm. professional life um, and in my identity as a professor and a, you know, and a scholar. But every time I go back to kind of through my narrative of like being queer and trans and Jewish, it really does feel like starting with my high school experience is like a part of that or my even kind of before that, like I went to a Jewish day school from mommy and me through 12th grade. So that kind of feels like a place to start. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That's so much of your life, right? Just yeah. like now that I'm an adult and like, well, hopefully at someday soon, we'll be thinking about, you know, hypothetical kids and where to send them to school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a huge deal to go to one school for that long, especially a religious school. Um, so it was obviously really formative and it was, um, a reformed Jewish community, which is comparatively liberal and less strictly observant, like within the context of Judaism. And like in my memory, we had a teacher and a Dean who were both men who were openly gay. Oh, um, okay. yeah. So like there was some representation around. We also had a GSA on campus, which like I know from my own, I do some like volunteering work with Glisten. Um, and so we'll talk about like the stats that it is. It's typically good for students, regardless of their personal backgrounds mm -hmm. in terms of like safety and inclusion on campus. It is just statistically better for all students if there's like a GSA on campus. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about how I did have that. Like, and I was in high school until 2002. So like late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. just to give like context. I'm glad you had that because I think that yeah. does make a big difference on how you approach queerness. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what's really interesting when I think back to... Like, I think comparatively, especially for the time it was, I have been extremely lucky and privileged to have a lot of support for LGBTQ folks around me. And yet it was still a long process before I, I felt comfortable to really interrogate my own mm -hmm. gender and sexuality, because it's not until I'm 26 that I mm -hmm. come out as queer. And so, like, I had this GSA, I had these... Um, and they were they were gay men. So I don't know if there was something. Okay. I do think there's something to be said for there weren't people who I saw and went, oh, my God, that's me. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like there were people like Ellen. And I thought that was all great. But it, there was never a moment of like it hitting me that that's I was seeing myself in those, yeah. in those folks. Yeah, that took longer for me. And so I think I'm more in line with some folks who are younger than me, who like, mm -hmm. I really found that through the internet and like YouTube mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, that's not, I think, as common for people my age necessarily, um, mm -hmm. unless they came out like a little bit, quote unquote, later. I recognize that it's not really later in life, but it felt like <laughs> compared to some other people, especially sure. like, it feels like today, more and more people come out younger. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall any students at my school being openly oh. bi or gay or, or anything LGBTQ. Um, but okay. a close friend of mine at the time did come out to me and our friend group as bi. But like it felt like the culture of, of the students on campus was still one where like if people quote unquote acted gay, that it was mm. okay to make fun of that person, right? Oh, and there okay. would be rumors yeah. around people being gay. So yeah. there was a lot of stigma despite, you know, these various things. So I graduated in 2002, and I also did grow up in a pretty um, liberal and LGBTQ-friendly family. Okay. So like, I remember my mom, who was a professor before she retired, telling me when I was in high school about her colleague, who was a friend of hers, who was a trans woman. And just like, now that seems so early to me for that to have been something yeah. that, 
this was accepted supposedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know what this person's experience actually was, but mm -hmm. supposedly the colleagues were all like, of course we're supportive. And again, that would be late nineties and early two thousands. Mm -hmm. So I do think I grew up in a pretty unusual circumstance. And so the only thing I can kind of reflect on is that like internalized homophobia and transphobia is still strong and still a mm -hmm. thing. And I was very much looking to my peers for what was okay. And I definitely felt like I had to do whatever I had to do to, to fit in. I was very shy and socially anxious, I think. Like, I definitely had undiagnosed anxiety for a lot of my life and until, like, probably around the same time that I was coming out. So that, I think, is part of what was at play that might have made it harder um, to kind of come out. But um, it was something that was always on my mind ever since I was a kid. Like, I have a lot of the tropes that I didn't realize were tropes for <laughs> people. Looking back, like, God, I remember that, like, I was growing up in Los Angeles where it was super hot in, especially in, like, the warm months, and I would wear a sweatshirt every single day. Me too. <laughs> My mom would it's get so mad thing. at me. Yeah, adults yeah. were always yelling at me, like, why are you wearing this? It's extremely hot out. This is not good for your health. Mm -hmm. um, and I had no idea. I just knew I was more comfortable wearing it, and I did not want to take it off. Like, yeah. you could not make me it's just confusing when you're a kid. It's confusing when you're an adult too, but especially <laughs> like then I had no language, like, you know, nothing that helped me kind of contextualize or understand what I was feeling or why. I also wore basically what people would think of as like, you know, stereotypically boys clothing mm -hmm. and would get asked all the time on the playground, like, are you a boy or, mm -hmm. or a girl? And like, even then, I can't tell if it was that like, I wanted to be a boy or if I actually was like, neither, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I almost feel like there's some part of me that already even then was like, why are these my choices? Like, yeah. can I just be like, no, yeah. I'm neither of those things. But it's also hard to know how much of that is like backwards projection, you know? Uh, I, sure. don't, I don't, I don't even know. Um, yeah, memory is weird. Memory is super weird. It's super weird. Um, and, and pretty unreliable uh, from yeah. what I've learned. Yeah. And then I do think it's possible that there was just a lot of fear, too, about, like, kind of realizing that if I looked too closely at my gender or my sexuality, that it might raise issues that I just wasn't feeling strong enough or, or mm -hmm. capable of dealing with when I was kind of in high school. So it was, like, through junior high especially, I was kind of able to embody more of the tomboy aesthetic and get away mm -hmm. with it. And I've heard this from other people, too, that it's, like, as you're getting towards high school, it's, like, it feels like the clock is kind of counting down to how long you can kind of get away with that before before your peers might start to make you feel like you're not fitting in. I do think that like my my aspiring skater aesthetic of, of junior high, it was like once eighth grade was over and we were going into high school, it was like, okay, time to now act, quote unquote, act like a girl. So I just tried to be invisible in high school, essentially. Like, I don't mean this is any offense to the gap, but I only shopped at The Gap because I was convinced that that would help me like really blend in. And it like wasn't me at all. I think it was just like how to be invisible. Yeah. Because um, I actually really like fashion. So that was something yeah. like a part of myself that I just kind of totally stayed away from. Mm -hmm. That now gives me a lot of joy. Did your religion at this point play into this at all? Yeah. So I think that it's, it's really hard for me to remember but my big takeaway about religion after going to a Jewish day school for that long was that I really started to associate Judaism with the institutions okay. of the religion. Mm -hmm. And that for me was was kind of the thing that most turned me off from Judaism. I just don't think institutions 
within religions are where it's at for me. Like that, maybe that works for somebody, but it's definitely not me. And so for a while, I just was like pretty turned off from religion after that. And I do think I probably associated it on some level with like people not being inclusive potentially as well. I mean, first of all, I remember some of my like earliest experiences with racism as a white person being seeing a black student come to my Jewish school that was overwhelmingly white. And, you know, when there were students of color, they were students who were Iranian or, or Persian Jews. And even that sort of got processed differently as like, it, it, again, in my memory, it was more like, oh, there's the like Ashkenazi or like Eastern European mm-hmm. uh, white Jews. And then there's like the Persian Jews. And that's just like a way that maybe we're like ethnically different almost. Like, I'm sure race was part of it, but I was a little more oblivious to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I also think it was something that was not like explicitly addressed, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that the school was not good on on race at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also indicative of the time. I think generally mm-hmm. the United States was in a different place around conversations on race. But this black student ended up leaving because of the horrible racism mm-hmm. that he faced there. And I didn't know him personally. This was like all stuff I heard through a friend. Um, but I think more and more, I associated this Jewish institution with discrimination and practices that I didn't think were part of what made me feel proud to be Mm. Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like that's still my tension even today with Jewish institutions is like, I want them to be better on race. Generally speaking, I want them to be better on like socioeconomic stuff, on disability, Mm. on LGBTQ inclusion. Like you can go down the list, right? And like like so many institutions still Mm. today, they reinforce normativity a lot of the time and power and privilege. And so I think that this early experience of going to Jewish day school continues to shape some of the like tensions I have today with institutional Judaism Mm -hmm. but whereas like once I graduated I kind of wanted nothing to do with Judaism for a little while actually Mm -hmm. like when I went to college I was like like I still felt Jewish it was never about my own internal identity it was just how much do I want to go to temple or engage with Jewish institutions and for a while I really like rejected that altogether I think now I've found more of like a happy medium. You know, I am not personally super involved in Jewish institutions, but I am interested in engaging with them and writing research that is intended to speak to them Mm. about the ways in which I think, like I want my Jewish community to improve, right? So like that there's power in speaking as someone who is part of that community, Mm -hmm. even though I'm always in this like relationship of tension with the institutions of that community. I think you're so right that like what you experienced the issue is that it's an institution. It's not the Jewishness of it. It's the institutional aspect. Like when you start organizing things in a certain way and there's power um, hierarchies involved, that's when you mm-hmm. have an issue. And like, obviously that's also in Christian institutions. Worse yes. because we're the ones with the privilege in the country. And so it's, oh, it gets to the point where you have to ask like, like, what do I want my relationship with these institutions to be? And I think I agree with you that sometimes it's, Well, if I stay in some capacity, then I get to have a voice in it. So, Mm -hmm. so you had these issues with your religion, this tension, and yet you're a religious studies professor. So I'd love to hear how that panned out. Yeah. So my story of like how I ended up in grad school is not the conventional story of how people end up in grad school. And it's also probably like not the recommended path for (laughs) grad school. 
because part of it is is like a story about not recognizing certain kinds of privilege and uh, and what seems normative to me. Mm-hmm. Like both my parents had PhDs. And so my sister and I both grew up sort of obnoxiously thinking, oh, this is what you do after you go to college. Mm. You go and you get a PhD. And I think that's very directly related to why she and I both have PhDs. So I think like that sort of has to be acknowledged. Um, but for me, after I um, finished college, I went to Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz for college, and I studied literature and philosophy. I wasn't sure if I was going to go to grad school for those things. I kind of took a couple years off school after undergrad while I applied to some grad programs. And I also worked as a, my dad was like, you really like, you know, working with kids, you like teaching, why don't you look into being a teaching assistant in a school in Los Angeles. And so I did that for a little while. And I actually ended up not pursuing a a PhD in anything related to literature at that time, but actually going to school for a master's of education and thinking, okay, maybe I do want to be an instructor or a teacher, probably in like the K through 12 but that was actually also kind of hard because it's really like women dominated teaching. And so there were all these like kind of like norms around femininity and heterosexuality flying around uh, in like cohort two at that time. And like given yeah. the age that we all were, a lot of people were like getting married or, you know, had serious partners. And I was still like really unsure what I was doing and trying to kind of embrace a certain kind of femininity for myself and figure out if it felt okay or not. So I went through that program and then at the end of that, that was when the the like Great Recession happened and there were, it was like mm-hmm. 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. and there were basically no jobs. And so I got like a part-time reading teacher gig at that point and that was all I could get mm-hmm. um, at like an elementary school. And that was a real bummer <laughs> as it was for many people. Yeah, um, yeah. And some portion of people at that point did the same thing I did, which is to say, okay, there aren't jobs right now. I do think grad school is something I'm interested in. What if I go back for a PhD in something? And again, that also obviously is not a choice that everyone is in a place to, to make. Um, right. That involves accruing debt, feeling sort of like I could rely on parents and have yeah. a certain amount, you know, amount of financial privilege to be able to do that. I also potentially didn't think it through all the way. I was, you know, I was like a you know, 20, young 20 something yeah. and I'm not going to pretend that this was like super well planned. Um, <laughs> and I always thought religion was so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I still kind of think it's like this microcosmic way to look at a lot of the same issues you could look at in society, mm-hmm. but it just gives you a more narrow lens through which to look at it. Like it feels overwhelming to me to look at all the like problems and, and segments of society. So, okay, mm-hmm. if I can narrow it down to like religion, or to Judaism, mm-hmm. how does that allow me to look at the same kind of structural issues I would look at otherwise, but give me a kind of narrower frame through which to look at it. But that was how I ended up in grad school. And I thought I was gonna, I like pitched myself as like, I'm gonna study how religion shows up in public schools. Cause that was okay. one of the things I was shocked about when I ended up teaching, you know, in that master program. Cause I'd never been in public schools, right? Like yeah. I do a Jewish education. And so all of a sudden I was like, wait, why is there so much Christianity yeah. in public schools? Yeah, if this There's is supposedly Christian. secular, why uh-huh. is it all Christian? Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. I was totally shocked. So, which, I mean, shows my naivete and, like, my upbringing. So, at that point, that's kind of what I thought I was going to study. Mm-hmm. And then the short version is when, I, when I'm around, and I was actually mostly 25. It was, like, on my 26th birthday, which is also National Coming Out Day, coincidentally. Oh, uh-huh. My birthday is October 11th. That was like the first day I remember going out to dinner with my mom and telling her like, so 
think I'm going to like start dating some other folks, right? Like potentially Mm -hmm. people of genders that you're not going to be expecting. And so that was for me, the moment when I was really able to come out was grad school. And then I shifted what I was studying. And I think Mm -hmm. I was able to come out in grad school because I had so much time alone and with my own thoughts and not surrounded by like anybody else's norms and just really dug into like realizing that there were some things I was pushing down that were just not making me very happy. And, and, you know, who do I want to be with my life or in my life? And so, like I said, it was the internet. I have one of these really embarrassing stereotypical stories for people of a certain time where like, I think it was like YouTube videos of Tegan and Sarah that did it for me. To be <laughs> so and like listening to them do interviews and stuff like yeah. that. And and just like, yeah, realizing that there was a whole wealth of knowledge on the internet of how mm-hmm. people talk about being queer, and then later how people talk about being non-binary and trans. Mm-hmm. That was so life giving to me, and really helped me figure stuff out. Do you want to share how your mom reacted or how your family has been since then to you coming out? It's always up to you what you want to share. But. Totally. So my family has been really supportive. I, I did grow up in a really like LGBTQ inclusive family. Right. Actually, now a lot of my family is queer. Like if you look at oh, cool. like, yeah, like <laughs> it's fun. Queer, queer cousin, queer step sibling, like mm-hmm. it's really amazing. Um, I think both my parents responded by like, telling me their own stories of like of like um, not exactly of like same-sex attraction but like sort of that sort of encounters thing. Like, <laughs> exactly. and I'm like this is this was supposed to be about me <laughs> yeah but they're trying to like relate to you like exactly. <laughs> right so it, it was yeah, it was sweet it was I think supposed to be very like normalizing which yeah which it was so yeah. And I think I was also so freaked out when I came out to people. Like, I remember some of my friends from high school who I came, we weren't in high school anymore, obviously. But when I came out to them, I would, like, sob when I was coming out mm. to people because I yeah. think there was so much built-up emotion, fear about how people would react. And yeah. multiple people told me that they thought I was telling them that I had, like, a terminal illness, which mm. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has gotten that reaction before. Mm. I think it is incredibly emotional for some folks and it was for me and it felt like 26 years worth of stuff built up inside me that was all kind of coming out at once but I'm grateful that like it hasn't for me been to my knowledge the reason why any relationship has changed I mean but it's also like being queer and trans has been the cause of many of my awesome relationships with people in my life that I love right like that was probably the part I didn't anticipate and that like people don't advertise right it's like it's often framed as a loss rather than I couldn't have anticipated how much I would gain yeah yeah from coming out as queer and trans or from identifying as queer and trans Mm -hmm. and I think those those relationships are super important for being able to think through things about Mm -hmm. who you are and who you want to be and like some of the queer and trans Jews who are friends of mine, Mm -hmm. those conversations are definitely super important because I feel alienated oftentimes from Jewish institutions and Judaism is so reliant on community. So like there's this idea that like it's very hard to be Jewish on your own. And I feel like I have experimented a lot with being Jewish on my own uh, because I feel so alienated from Mm -hmm. Jewish institutions. And I feel like the thing that helps me to navigate that is that I'm not really on my own, right? Like Mm -hmm. I do have 
queer and trans Jewish friends who helped me like feel rooted in some kind of Jewish identity and some kind of interrogation of how all of these things work together and like are better for their engagements with each other. Like that it's not about like queerness and Jewishness being intention, but like there's actually ways that they can complement each other and do complement each other. Can you provide some examples of that? Yeah, this is the part that I always feel a little more nervous talking about. Mm-hmm. But but I do think I like have some examples that are in my research of this sort of thing. Oh, yeah, because you do this like as a job is <laughs> <laughs> is this research. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. The most I've learned about how like Judaism and queer and transness can go together is 100 percent through my my work and like my research and okay. what I've seen other people do and that is something that's like a little bit more complicated for me is like I'm I don't would never say that like the only place where you can explore how like queerness and Jewishness go together is through like explicitly religious engagements with Judaism but it is through my research where I have seen a lot more of that because I am not personally uh, I don't really identify as like religiously Jewish it does feel more like a and it's complicated because <laughs> it's very much rooted in this religious history and this and religious tradition, but I do associate more with with it in a way that feels more cultural to me. But I have seen a lot of people who very much relate to it as religious Jews use it as a way to also like negotiate uh, and embrace like their queer and trans identities, which has been really cool to see as somebody who maybe hasn't necessarily wanted to pursue that for myself, but like knowing it's an option is awesome. And it has helped me think about my own Jewish identity, even from a more secular perspective, because of what I've seen these religious Jews doing and engaging with all of these things together. So, okay. So my Jewish identity like does feel like something I mostly engage with through my work as someone who studies Jews, even though I do like observe some holidays. And like I said, like through my Jewish queer and trans friendships, like I kind of engage with it. But a chunk of like my research to date, it's on like a number of things, but it has really been rooted in the relationship between like queer, trans and Jewish identity specifically. And one of the things that does interest me the most in that work is the way in which religion can provide alternative ways of seeing the world, being in the world, and even reshaping the world, which is kind of what we were talking about a moment ago. For example, like I've written a bit on Jewish rituals that have been created often by and for queer and trans Jews for gender transition. Mm. So what's interesting to me about those rituals is how they use like traditional Jewish technologies for marking change um, or transitions that that already exist, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like we don't have to create as queer and trans Jews a technology for like marking this kind of big life change. Mm -hmm. There's actually one that already exists in Judaism, which is the Jewish ritual bath, which is called a mikvah. And they adapt that that like sort of more traditional ritual that uses that bath to create a ritual that involves still immersing in that bath, but for the purpose of marking that you're having this transition in your life, which is some kind of gender transition. And that can mean different things to different people. So like it can mean taking on a new name, it can mean hormones, it can mean surgery. But I've also heard of like queer people who don't necessarily identify as trans using this ritual to like embrace a femme identity, for Mm -hmm. example. So I do think there's pretty like wide ranging ways that the ritual is used. And and even like what I know is limited from trying to do this research because like I didn't do any of my research in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so like when I 
for this femme example, it was from someone who has been doing these rituals with queer and trans folks in San Francisco. So it's like, there's so much that I think we're missing out on right now because there aren't people who are even looking into this. Yeah. So sometimes when people are like, what's your research about? Like why, like almost like the, why should we care? Pitch it to us. It kind of frustrates me that it's not enough of an answer to be like, because we're ignoring an entire group of people. Like mm-hmm. we don't actually know what queer and trans Jews are doing right now. Yeah. But like, that's not like what the publishers or like acad- other <laughs> academics necessarily want to hear. They want like a, so mm-hmm. what that's more than that. So I've worked on like pitching that part too, mm-hmm. but I do feel like I always want to start with being like, it's important that right now there's a lot of like, what will be history and what is like now current religious life that is shaping Judaism as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it, this is true in other religions too, right? That like queer and trans people along with other marginalized communities within religious communities are like often ignored yeah. for their role that they're also playing in shaping these religious traditions. So that's like a huge part to me of, of why I'm even doing what I'm doing. But part of what like seems remarkable to me in these mikvah rituals for gender transition is that like if you look at what mikvah traditionally has been used for as like a technology of transition it's this idea that you're like transitioning from impure to pure like it was Mm. a purification ritual um, traditionally right like it's been lots of things over time so i don't want to oversimplify it but the idea that that traditionally is what it was for and what it was about and that's certainly still what it is for some people who use it and so Part of what I think is really amazing is that, like, when I see queer and trans people using it for this ritual for gender transition, mm-hmm. it feels like such a, a powerful and insightful way to rework this tradition that was about purity. Because, like, yeah. I don't know, my way of understanding and exploring queer and trans identity is definitely not to emphasize concepts like purity and, like, yeah. authenticity. Like, I feel like yeah. so much of queer and trans identity is pushing back on those kinds of concepts, mm-hmm. right? For example, essential ideas about gender and gender identity, right? Like, mm-hmm. what does it even mean to be a man or a woman, yeah. right? Or for there to be a, a right way to be something. Exactly. And like, and I should say also that like, not that these two groups are mutually exclusive, they're not, mm-hmm. but like before, you know, queer and trans people were like notably using this ritual in this particular way, there were also feminist Jews, typically like women, um, some of whom were also queer, like sure. working this ritual too, who I think also really struggled with this idea of purity and some of the like really normative and patriarchal ideas about gender that this ritual has kind of been imbued with. Like it has some of that residue still of patriarchy Mm -hmm. and gender norms in it. So all of this, I think, makes it really interesting to think about like why feminists and why queer and trans people have been using this ritual. But like I had this grad advisor in grad school when I was writing this dissertation who was like looking at this ritual with me. And her name is Jane Ward. And she was uh, she um, works in queer studies. And she was looking at it and, and saying like, that it's so interesting because it seems like if anything is getting purified here, what's getting purified or like eradicated for these queer and trans Jews is cis normativity yes. and normativity. Mm-hmm. And I just think she's exactly right. That like, that's what's powerful about this yeah. ritual is that it allows people, even if it's just for a moment, to both feel that like queer and trans identities in a Jewish framework are being 100% centered and that it's not in relationship to something else there's no like normativity at work on you in that moment it's like yeah. this little glimpse of and I, I talk about it as like queer futurity like this idea that like there is this kind of like utopia that we can move forward towards and I think like a Jewish 
idea of that is called olam haba, which is the world to come. And so for me, that's like, that's what this is a moment of for these queer and trans Jews. It's like a taste of this beautiful world to come. That oh, they could, I love that. Right? Where yeah. like, there will be this Jewish affirmation of queer and trans identity. Yeah. And so to me, that's like, that encompasses like what I find so magical and moving about studying yeah. queer and trans Judaism. That's so cool. And I love that idea of taking this ritual of bathing for a community that like, you know, one of the main narratives about trans people is that we all hate our bodies. And yeah. while that's not true, there's truth in it that a lot of us do have problems with our bodies where we struggle to love our bodies. And so to say, well, I'm going to have this bath in which, you know, baths are such a bodily thing. It's a very physical thing to say, well, my body is good. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can articulate this better than I can since you're the one who has studied this so much, but like- No, I this just, is great, keep going. <laughs> like, I, just, I love that embodiment idea because yeah. so many people assume that trans people, like that we can't love our bodies or be connected to our bodies in a positive way. And right. you're taking this embodiment that has been around for millennia, right? To mm -hmm. say, well, we're actually connected to this sort of embodied goodness that we, I don't know, I just really love that. And I think that's really cool. I'll definitely have to look into that a bit more. I might make yeah. you send me some articles or something. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you some stuff. Yes. So we, we've gone on sort of a tangent where you're telling me about your research without completing the story of how you finished. I think we left off sort of in the chronology, you're in grad school still. Is there sure. more you want to talk about there? Yeah. Let's see. So as I had mentioned, I was 26 and a grad student when I came out and that was coming out as queer. So I think it was a few years after that um, when I began identifying as non-binary. And I think that was because I was then able, after coming out as queer, I was then able to kind of get more immersed in the community and hang out with a lot of different kinds of queer people yeah. who introduced me to lots of ideas I was not aware of. So like meeting the first person that I ever knew who used they pronouns and that that kind of opened up a different world for me. And then I, over time, I wanted to use they pronouns. And then it was probably even like another, maybe a few years after identifying as non-binary that I started to identify as trans. Because I think it was like, I didn't always feel like I could claim trans. And I think mm -hmm. there are a number of people I've met who are in that non-binary space who struggle with whether or not trans is an identity that works for them or or maybe feel like, oh, well, that's not mine to claim as sort of mm -hmm. like a respect for trans people kind of position, which is sort of how I felt for a while is like, that's not my struggle. And so I don't want to claim that. And then over time, it became clear to me that like a trans identity, first of all, can be lots of things, but, but that like if, if a kind of simple definition for it could be something like a kind of movement away from whatever you're assigned by the world, that definitely resonates with me. And like for me personally, there was also a point where I, I decided I wanted top surgery. There was a point where I decided I wanted to go on low dose testosterone. But I don't mean to imply that any of those things are necessary for somebody right. to, to identify as trans, right? Mm -hmm. And then there were other reasons why that became a, a good fit as well. And certainly like feeling like it is helpful to hear the wisdom of other people in that community and that it helps mm -hmm. me understand myself better and like making some friendships through that identity as well. Yeah. Yeah. So all that happened around that time. So I'm 35 now, but it's, I feel like it's like even in the last like few years that a lot of these changes have happened for me. It's like pretty recently in my life that I've started 
using they and like having that even on like my work stuff and identifying publicly as trans and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it still feels like relatively new, which is interesting. But I also feel like I I don't feel like I've arrived at some kind of like end point. Uh, And I don't know that I ever will. Like, I'm not sure if that's like a thing for everybody. right? I don't. Yeah, I don't really know many people who say they have reached some sort. And now I'm like completely transitioned, whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. And like, same, I also don't know a lot of folks who feel that way, which again, I don't want to like, say that that means there isn't anybody. Right. There are so many of us that (laughs) surely someone. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, teaching about religion, this is what I've learned, right? I never say, (laughs) like, you can't make a blanket statement. Someone will say, well, actually, exactly. And that's why I'm like, my students, if they leave understanding one thing, it is that like, do not try and make generalizations. It's Mm. going to backfire. Yeah. But One of the things I think about in my work on um, gender and identity broadly is that like gender is almost like this process of of layering or like a process of like sedimentation. If you imagine like those like rock layers, like one on top of another or like a flip book, like it feels like like it doesn't feel static to me. Right. Right. And like aging as I'm getting older, aging is like a huge part of that process too. You know, and looking at pictures of myself as a kid and like just this complexity of understanding who we are. To, like I'm supposed to look at myself now and like resonate with that as who I am mm. more than I'm supposed to like look at a picture of myself as a kid and like resonate with that but I feel like I am all of these layered things and I'm mm. also like whoever I'm going to become and I think that's what's complicated and for some people destabilizing and I mean when I say for some people I especially mean like non-trans people <laughs> destabilizing sure. about trans identity I think for some people it like freaks them out because it highlights identity is actually not static it never was it never is but we pretend that it is kind of for convenience yeah (laughs) and also like the government pretends that it is for the regulation of people I have a few more questions for you one thing is so you're a professor of religion and queer and trans studies does that mean you have classes specifically on queer and trans studies as well as religion or do you sort of try to fit queer studies into your religion classes? So I do always address LGBTQ identity along with the race. Like those are the two, let's say like a course where I'm expected to teach on Judaism. It is important to me to make sure that I also include discussions of race in that and um, discussions of LGBTQ identity. There are other kinds of discussions, for example, like accessibility that I think would also be important to have. And so I always Again, it's definitely something I struggle with of how do I cover what I'm sort of like normatively expected to cover. But I I do always at least teach on both of those things and like gender and sexuality also a little bit more broadly. They're definitely really clear examples of how both of those things come up in teaching on Judaism. And also I teach a class on Islam because I'm at such a small school, even though it's not like a specialty that I have, it is one that I've had to cultivate essentially. And so I taught that for the first time. And we did also talk about, you know, certainly race and then also about LGBTQ identities. And the students seemed really like positively responsive to that. That was going to be my next question was sort of the feedback you get. Yeah, it, it is a very good question because so I also teach a class that's on religion, gender and sexuality. And that class also felt like it went quite well, but like it's who's self-selecting into that class, yes. right? Yes. So I do teach at a smaller college that does have mostly white, it is mostly Christian, 
there is some conservatism, although that's a little harder for me to suss out. And there are also some progressive students too. Um, plus again, it's people who are self-selecting to take class from the professor who is queer and trans and out about it. So I wonder too how that plays into it. But I would say I get more surprise from students or more like potential pushback at times when it's like they're taking the world religions class for me. Mm -hmm. and not necessarily expecting to encounter conversations about LGBTQ identity. And that is, at least in a couple of instances when I've taught that class in the, in the past, and I teach that class basically twice every semester. So like I have two different classes of it, but it's the same material in both of them. And so I get lots of opportunities to sort of see how students are responding to that. And I've definitely encountered some, you know, like one of the examples that always pops in my head is like this one student who was like, well, you know, I don't have any problem with gay people. I just don't want to know about what they do. That kind of thing, right? Yeah. And that feels like it summarizes the kind of conservatism that I experience at my institution more than, from, from the students, more than like anything that's going to be blatant or outright. Yeah. And then there are also students who are like vocally like pro-gay. There is an LGBTQ student organization on campus, which I have been co-supervising since I've been there pretty much as far as I remember. And I know some of those students definitely struggle too. I mean, it's, it can be hard, but we're all in it together, which is really yeah. nice. <laughs> and it's cool to be in the position of being a, a supportive adult, right? It's like, I don't know if you had this experience too, but it's like, it's like you turn around one day and you're like, oh wait, I'm the supportive adult in the room. Yeah. Like I'm the person I needed back yeah. when I was a confused child. Like, yeah. Exactly. Do you have any examples of students who seem like they've been really enriched by what you've been able to teach them? Yes. The other professor who teaches world religions will talk about how we'll get students who are there because they're required to take the class. And so like one of the best comments that we can get from them is like, I was surprised how much I enjoyed this. And that it does serve like a cultural competency function is kind of how I think about that class. There's a lot of things that it can't do. Um, and there's been a lot of like criticism, rightly so, within religious studies of teaching quote unquote world religions classes that often end up sort of just oversimplifying the religions or even like teaching it from a sort of neo-colonial perspective, which is obviously unhelpful. So I don't know what the future of that course will be at my university, you know, going forward, because we're definitely aware of some of these critiques. But in the meantime, I think she and I have both used it as an opportunity to to teach our, our students skills that we hope will make them more culturally competent, whatever context they're going into, make them more prepared to encounter people with different faiths and cultures than their own and racial backgrounds and ethnicities and genders and sexualities. Like that's what I use the class for, which isn't necessarily going to make them expert on any of those things, right? But makes them more equipped to get into real conversations with people where they have the opportunity to like have real shared lived experiences with people and learn from other human beings when appropriate <laughs> um, and to ask questions when appropriate and when that's welcome. So that's kind of what I'm using that class for. And that is something that I have gotten positive feedback from students about. And I think likewise in the, especially in the gender, sexuality and religion class, and I think there is this assumption of, oh, it's going to be about the tensions. It's going to be about how they're unwelcome. And I think even the starting point for the class was look at two totally different responses to the quote unquote LGBTQ issue that were put out by like two different branches within Christianity. I forget exactly what the issue was or why this had happened, but there were like two statements that were released on LGBTQ people that were supposed to both be speaking on behalf of Christianity and which totally contradicted each other, right? 
And I think that's always a good starting point because mm -hmm. religion is fundamentally, as we were saying, as kind of like where we started, it's about people, right? Like, and people can make it about power and they can come up with normative and dogmatic readings of what quote unquote religion is. But that sort of was our starting point for inter the interrogation of all of this. And I think that empowered a lot of students who yeah. used to think, oh, it's just Christianity says, religion says, the Bible says, instead of having a much more complicated understanding and nuanced understanding mm -hmm. of the many different things, the many different interpretations, right, that can be credited to different religions. Yes, that is, that's very cool. I think you're doing really important work by getting people to just open their mind to that idea. I really appreciate that. <laughs> But yeah, that is my hope always for it, is that I'm planting seeds that I hope will will change how people who may have uh, lots of access, who will likely will have lots of access to, to certain kinds of power and privilege to have a different way of, of seeing the world and a different kind of hopefully compassion for other folks, which part of what I appreciate about my institution is that that's also kind of the message of the institution itself. There is this kind of social justice message. So I, I hope... I hope that in our small way, we're kind of all living into that together. Yeah. I always ask a last question of if there is just some parting words of wisdom you'd give to trans people and non-binary people of faith or in general, what would it be? Yeah, I think I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. So this might be a little bit repetitive, but I think it's worth, you know, at least reiterating because... It is, I feel like, at the center of what I'm kind of doing with my students in the class, this idea that I'm, like, really trying to convey to people that religion or faith is whatever we make it, mm -hmm. right? That it's not this thing that lives off and above us in the distance as this, like, kind of monolithic construct that dictates our lives, but that actually, like, it comes into being repeatedly through the interactions that human beings have mm -hmm. with religion, and like whatever we choose to make it and that we have the power to, to change it, I think. I'm banking on it, right? Because I would like to see religion, just religions generally speaking, and Judaism specifically speaking, become more inclusive. So what I would say is that I think that like people are, are what give religion life and meaning from my perspective. And when religion is used to do violence or to perpetuate hate, that's about people abusing power and using faith or religion as their tools in order to do that. And so what I'm interested in is not denying the violence that has been done with religion um, and other social tools, because I think that's not useful either, because it, I think it actually has to be acknowledged. And we have to figure out how to heal from it and how to, to address it in one way or another that feels good, particularly to the people who have been victimized by that power dynamic. But I also want to, to figure out how like Judaism and other religions can more responsibly, going forward more responsibly, like own their power and their privilege in ways that prioritize both those who have been harmed and who continue to be harmed. And I think queer, trans, and other marginalized people actually have a central role to play in that process in moving religious communities in positive directions. So that's what I'm constantly trying to argue in my work and why I think beyond just that, as I said before, we don't know what LGBTQ people, religious people are doing because many of us are not paying any attention and that in and of itself is harmful and a problem. But I think beyond that, it's this is not a peripheral group, right? Marginalized communities have been historically marginalized, but I think going forward, they need to be at the center of what religious communities do in, a, in order to have like 
meaningful and inclusive communities going forward. And especially as demographics change, it's actually, it helps make the argument because increasingly, I mean, it's happening in Judaism. I imagine it's happening in other um, religious communities in the U.S. as well. And I should say that I've really been speaking about the U.S. Like it was sort of like the unnamed region we've been talking about this whole time, because I think it's, you know, it's always got to be contextual to where we're talking about. I know Jewish community is increasingly diverse. Yes. Um, And that doesn't mean that Jewish communities or institutions have increased their ability to be inclusive and affirming of that diversity. So this is, to me, this is the issue that we're facing. And this is why I think like the marginalized need to no longer be marginalized. They need to be central and centered. Like the people have shown up. It's time for these institutions to figure out how to center them. Exactly. So many thanks to SJ for sharing some of their story and research. And so many thanks to you for listening or reading along and supporting this show however you can. My biggest thanks go to those patrons who support me at a $12 level or higher every single month. Ron Hartzler, Jay Gebner, Willow Hoving, Remy Page, thank you so very much. I don't know if y'all realize this, but I offer a small payment to each of my interviewees for taking an hour of their time to open themselves up and share stories and wisdom with all of us. So when you support me on patreon.com slash queerlychristian or at ko-fi.com slash queerlychristian, you're not just giving me money, you're helping me pay all of these delightful people as well. So if you have some cash to spare, it really is appreciated. But please don't offer money that you need to make ends meet for yourself. You can still be an enormous help to this show by getting the word out that it exists. Talk about it with friends you think would like it, share its existence with your faith communities, rate and review it on iTunes or wherever else you listen. That is honestly just as helpful to keeping Blessed Are the Binary Breakers going. That's it for this month. Go out there and break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.